Welcome to Massive Late Fee. And now your hosts, Mark and Carol. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Massive Late Fee. My name is Mark. With me, as always, is my girlfriend, Carol. How are you doing, Carol? Hey, what's up? We've had a good week here at Massive Late Fee. You guys are really doing a good job sharing the tapes with everybody. We're, we're getting letters from, from different parts of the world, different people that have listened to our our show and, and said that they like it and all that stuff. So we really appreciate all the outpouring of support that we've been getting. You guys can keep it coming. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're pretty happy with everything, the way it's going. Yeah, it's pretty exciting every time that every time that I hear that somebody even bothered to listen to our tapes, it, it makes me happy, let alone that they share them and like them. Yeah, absolutely. But no news this week. No news is good news, so I guess it's good news this because week. Because Carol won, that's why there's no news this week. Yeah, well, there's not really anything going on either, which is another reason why Carol got to win. <laughs> yeah, but see, I just I saved you all from listening to the boring stuff. So I guess we'll get right into it with 90210. We've got no lonely hearts. We've got no news. We've got nothing. I didn't plan on on doing anything else either. So it might be a short one this week. So we get straight to the stuff that you're listening to here in the first place. Um, Okay, so 90210 this week. I could talk about how I went to Laser Quest. Okay, do you want to talk about Laser Quest? Have Have we talked about Laser Quest yet? I don't. I don't think so. I went to Laser Quest with my friend Mike and my friend Bill and my friend Bob. Billy and Bobby and Mikey. Hee hee. Wow. <laughs> well, that's quite a you're, you're infantilizing them. I don't know why. I don't know. I'm just saying shit. Are you trying to say that laser tag is a child's? activity well it is it's really popular now there are adults in there that play with us all like a lot of them okay well they're lame and they need to get a life i finished first in one of the games it's great congratulations I, I always have a really good a really good accuracy which is important to me i'm always like 90 percent or higher okay so i had a 95 percent accuracy you get you get bonus points for that and the guy, he goes through all the rules and everything, and then he en- always ends it with, play hard, play strong, and play to survive. Wow, that sounds awesome. It's fun. <laughs> no, no, I know. I, we should probably be going to the mall and braiding each other's hair, right? Um, No, because you don't have long hair. Duh. I think you're missing my point. <laughs> My point is we do guy-type activities. You do girl-type activities. But you're making fun of our guy-type activities. Well, because they're lame. Well, So's braiding your hair and talking about boys. That's lame, too. Oh, so you're lame? So talking about you is lame? Wasting brain power on you is lame? Trying to look pretty for you is lame? I mean, that's what you're saying here. <laughs> okay, well, then... Reading Tiger Beat magazine and talking about Jonathan Taylor Thomas is lame. How Ew. about that? Ew. 
Well, that's no, what lots of girls we do. We don't do that. Lots of girls do. I've never, ever, ever okay, I'm read sorry. Tiger Beat magazine. I'm sorry. And Jonathan Taylor Thomas is not my cup of tea. Thank you very much. I'm sorry. I forgot. You don't do anything that's lame. I you, don't. You're just perfect. Because I'm cool. Okay. I am cool, and mm-hmm. you are lame, but I love you anyway. Have you ever heard of something called Dungeons and Dragons? Yes. Miss Cool. And it's awesome. What about Magic the Gathering? Again, super cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> Shut that up. Very cool stuff. It is. You're just jealous because you're not cool enough to be in my Dungeons and Dragons group. Okay. Oh, I couldn't be in your Dungeons and Dragons group if I wanted to be? Well, I don't know. Do you think that you could even um, sit for three hours and play a tabletop role-playing game without making fun of everybody? I don't know. Yeah, see, I don't think you could. So, no, you couldn't. Anyway, so 90210. Go ahead, Carol. Speaking of lame, let's talk about 90210. (laughs) All right, 90210 this week, a very Brenda-heavy episode. And Luke, Perry, uh, Dylan. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was, yeah, okay, I remember what happened now. Yeah, so it was a very Brenda-heavy episode. So someone called Brenda centric. Yes, yes, that that could be our new word, Brenda centric. Um, so she's supposed to babysit, and she's looking for a copy of what movie was it? Are you kidding me? No. Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing. Every woman's favorite movie, 1987's Dirty Dancing. So she wanted to watch. I don't know why you would assume that babysitting means watching Dirty Dancing, though. That seems weird. Like, does she not work when she babysits? I, I work when I babysit. I don't have time to sit around and watch movies. I think when she babysits, she wants to have the time of her life. <laughs> so no one. Okay. So she went to three different video stores to find a copy of this movie. It's like if you like it that much, go to the mall and buy it. Seriously. Anyway. Yeah. Go to. Whatever. Harmony House. Um, I don't know. Anyways, she, uh, it gets canceled because the kid has the chicken pox. And Dylan and Brandon are working on the car. And um, Dylan says that she should see, like, a better movie and see it on the big screen with him. So he wants to take her to see, what, what did you say it was? Like a Marx Brother movie? Yeah, Animal Crackers. Yeah, see, I've never seen or even really heard of these movies. Um, All every one of their movies was based on. Every one of their movies was the title was another word for nonsense. Animal crackers, horse feathers, duck soup. <laughs> All those things mean nonsense, basically. Well, I mean, okay, duck soup. I could see somebody eating a bowl of duck soup. Animal crackers exist, but horse feathers. Horses don't have feathers. That's nonsense. Yeah, well, horse feathers is just a term meaning nonsense. It's a really, really old term. Oh. I, I think it goes back to they all just mean nonsense. Okay. They, but those, I think, horse feathers goes back to even colonial times, where someone would say, you know, they'd make some claim and they'd say that's horse feathers, meaning you know it doesn't exist. It's nonsense. Okay, kind I of gotcha. Thing. Okay, so they're going to go see this movie, and he decides to stop by his apartment or his house, or apparently yeah. he doesn't live in the hotel anymore. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with that, but are we sure that wasn't the hotel? It might Just have been. Just from a different view? Yeah, it might have been the hotel that he was at with his dad and the people. So he gets his dad's there, and he doesn't even know his dad's in town. Yeah. They get in this big fight. 
By the way, not the best Marx Brothers movie. Duck Soup is the best Marx Brothers movie. Okay. That's the one where he pretends to be the count of some made-up country. It's got political sort of allegories. It's very, it's funny. Okay. The Marx Brothers are good, but I wouldn't go, I wouldn't go see a film festival of all their, some of their movies I could take or leave. Okay. Um, I, I definitely wouldn't go to a film festival of Marx Brothers. I, I know you wouldn't. Yeah. But this is what he has chosen to invite Brenda to do on a date. Yeah. But he ends up getting in this huge fight with his dad. Everything he does is is something someone 40 years older than he is would do. <laughs> because he is. Drives a classic Porsche. Go see uh, movies from 1932. <laughs> you know, all that stuff. It's just, he seems, he's, I guess, an old soul. Right. I suppose they're they're trying to go for that James Dean. Down to the car, I bet that car is very reminiscent of the car James Dean died in, actually. Oh. Creepy. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, he gets in a huge fight with his dad. Yeah. His dad said, I asked you to do some things while I was gone. I'm assuming illegal things, based on what... Brandon and Brenda's dad say. Yeah, their dad decides that he doesn't want Brenda dating him because he thinks that he is bad news only because his dad's bad news, which is dumb. Like, yeah, he says it's bad news bears, Brenda. (laughs) But um, he gets really upset Mm -hmm. and, you know, goes like running out and Brenda's, you know, chasing after him. And then... He starts screaming. Yeah. He goes full psychotic. Yeah. And it's like the, you know, you're tearing me apart from the James Dean thing to uh, to kind of Rebel Without a Cause. but or, or was that in Giant? I don't remember. I think it was Rebel Without a Cause. Either way, he goes full crazy. He picks up. She says something like, just calm down or why can't you just talk or something like that. He picks up a flower pot and just smashes it on the ground. Yeah. Totally yeah. crazy. She runs away. He chases after her, grabs her, and, you know, she. he says, you know, it's I'm sorry, it's not you, or whatever. They start hugging, and then he just starts crying and saying that his dad drives him nuts and, and all this stuff. It's so weird because it seems like a huge overreaction yeah. to his dad just yelling at him. Yeah, but, I mean, they also hadn't seen each other in, like, more than a year, so... I think there was a lot more going on there than just his dad yelling at him this time. Yeah, I think there's a lot of history there, obviously. But um, what's weird to me is this is this is their first kiss. You know, he's he's like screaming and she's running and there's crying and there's hugging and they start kissing. And like, I realize emotions were high, which can, you know, lead to stuff. But it didn't seem like a romantic moment to start making out. Maybe she likes that, though. Uh, All that drama and shit. Maybe. You know, it's funny, too, going back to the very beginning of the episode, when he comes out from under the car, the camera is sort of ground level, where sort of his point of view, you know, underneath, it's not underneath the car, but it's at that level. And then it pans up her legs to, to her, like he's checking out her legs. Okay. And I guess she has, you know, fine legs. She's short. You can tell she's short. Her legs are sort of stubby. It's not like that long, elegant view of... I'm not a leg guy anyway, but it's not like that long, elegant view of of legs. It's it's literally about 10 seconds just yeah. of pan up because she's so short. 
Well, dear God, I would hope you're not a leg guy. You wouldn't be with me if you were. My legs are like the shortest legs ever. I'm 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 four eleven and a half, like like literally munchkin sized. Um, but yeah, so they start making out. They don't go to the movie because apparently they're just making out the whole night. Is that yeah. supposed to count as a date? Because I would not count that as a date. She doesn't watch a Marx Brothers movie this whole time, which maybe is good, right? <laughs> Um, so, you know, he takes her home, they make out more in the car before she goes in. It's mm-hmm. just all making out. I think that counts as a date. Making out? Don't you? No. They didn't talk. They didn't eat. They didn't participate in an activity. They just made well, they, out. They participated in an activity. <laughs> making out is an activity. I don't know. I, I think that, you know, some some kind of formal uh, event should occur on a date, especially for a first date. Well, yeah, uh, probably. Um, but whatever. I mean, we don't always go out. Yeah, but it's not a first date. We've been dating a long time. So, you know, and, and but if, when we don't go out, I don't kind of as a date at all. OK. I just um, look at it as us hanging out and spending time together. Yeah. Um. Okay, so, like I said, her dad doesn't like this at all and actually says to her that, you know, he doesn't want her going on the, on another date with Dylan because he wants to take her out. And she's like, well, I'll just make plans with Kelly instead. Yeah. Like, like who doesn't know that means she's still going out with him? Like, I, I don't understand. Yeah, I agree. But, and she says to Brandon, you want to help me out here since Dylan's his friend and and Brandon's basically like, uh, you know, he, he kind of fumbles around. And then his dad says he's got nothing to add to this. Right. Well, it really isn't his place. And I think she was putting him in a shitty situation. Yeah. Well, as we find out, he's not super thrilled about this either. Right. Yeah. I mean, for even, different reasons, even though him and Dylan are friends, you know, he, he doesn't uh, doesn't trust that Dylan's not going to, you know, just hurt Brenda because apparently he has a reputation with girls. Well, I think it's part of it is that he doesn't want her to hurt Brenda. And part of it is that it's his friend and he doesn't want to lose his friend to a relationship with his sister. Basically, yeah, he doesn't ever say that, though. No, but I think that's part of it. I agree. It probably is. Um, have you ever had that issue with your siblings? With my siblings? Yeah. No, they're too they're too much older than I am. Yeah, I'm in the same boat with that. So if if any of my like if my sisters had dated any of my friends, that would have been super creepy. Yeah. Because my my sister is closest to me in age is eight years older than I am, and the other one is fourteen years older than <laughs> I am. So yeah, that would have been that would have been odd. Yeah. What about your cousin? Uh, no, no, she hasn't dated anyone that I'm friends with. Okay. So, I mean, I suppose if that ever happened, it would depend on the friend and what kind of couple that couple they would make. Right. I can see how it would get awkward or even just like your own friends dating would be awkward. I yeah. Mean, any, any kind of change like that. I have had that happen where a friend has dated another friend. That's kind of weird. Yeah. What happened? Well, they just, they go off. On their own. You, that I mean, it's basically the, you know, exactly what you would think. So we used to all hang out together. There was like four of us or no, five of us. And then two of them started dating each other. And 
so the three of us would hang out and those two would be paired off someplace else. And the, the occasional times when they would hang out, all five of us would still hang out together. They'd be making out in the corner or whatever. Oh, that's annoying and rude. Yeah. Okay, so um, Brendan does talk to Dylan about his concern. His name's still Brandon. Brandon talks to Dylan about If he ever changes his name to Brendan, I'll let you know. Okay. And um, he ends up pissing him off. Like, he's all offended and like, I wouldn't do that to your sister. Like, Yeah, and that's the thing is I think that, well, I guess Brandon doesn't know Dylan super well at this point. But as I mentioned to you when we were watching the episode, even if Dylan has a reputation for kind of whoring around, I would think he's a good enough guy that he wouldn't do that with Brandon's sister because of out of respect for Brandon and because of the relationship that they have. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, unless he was a total asshole, which he's not. Um, so he's supposed to take Brenda out and her girlfriends come over and it's this really, like you said, it's kind of a weirdly filmed scene where she's just trying on a bunch of outfits and they're doing her hair and makeup and they speed it up. So it's, yeah. And there's music underneath it. Yeah. It's very, it, it actually, I guess maybe it kind of is reminiscent of a Marx Brothers film in certain degrees. Oh, maybe that's why they did that. But it, it's a... It's a moment that's filled like it's comedy and none of the rest of the episode is comedy. Right. But the reason they're putting so much into this is because Brenda has decided that she is going to sleep with, with Dylan. Yeah. And the other backdrop to this episode that I guess we should mention oh, real yeah. quick is that throughout the entire episode, everyone's got to get this form signed so they can go to the, the auditorium to get a special lecture on sex education as part of the class they're in the class i don't know they don't ever say what it's called health. maybe health okay yeah that that's the name of the class in in our high school as well so they have a section on sex education but it's just kind of in general health and so everyone's got to get this form signed so they can hear this and that's sort of a backdrop to the entire episode every once in a while someone will mention either the form or they'll mention that sex education is coming up yeah, so um, I guess that maybe is why it's in her mind so much. And then Kelly uh, gives her a condom. Like, Yeah, Kelly comes across as kind of a slut in this episode for, for some reason without actually doing anything because she's not, Kelly's not even dating anyone right now from what we can tell. And she's not having sex at all right now from what we can tell. But everything that she says is so sex-centric. It's like she's living vicariously through Brenda. Yeah. And maybe she is because she did say that she thought Dylan was was cute. That's true. A couple episodes before. But she says, I mean, she gives her some decent advice, like never trust the guy to have protection. Oh, is that decent advice? Always carry protection. Well, that's, that's, yeah, don't you think so? I I do. I just think it's funny that you're saying it. I mean, I think that that most men should be responsible or most, most boys should be responsible and have their own protection, but as a girl, you want to you want to make sure that you're protected. Yeah, and, but then girls get looked at like sluts if they're walking around with condoms. Yeah, but you, yeah, you, you don't blow them up and put them on your head. You don't have to advertise the fact that you have them. Well, what if they fall out of your purse and then the guy sees them and then he's like, "Oh, okay, so I guess I'm going to get lucky." You know, I mean, I agree that you should have them on you. I always do. But that's because we're in a relationship. Um, 
what I'm saying. And oh my God, mom, um, forget I said that. Uh, <laughs> but I don't think that if you're just starting to date somebody or you're not dating anyone, that you should just be walking around kind of because it does make you look a little slutty. I guess. I, I, I don't know. It doesn't. Not to me. It doesn't. I think you should be smart. I think everyone should be smart and protect themselves. But so she says that. And then she says she's talking about she says something like uh, Brenda says something about romance and, you know, wanting to have connections and, and all this stuff. And Callie's basically like, uh, you know, it doesn't matter kind of thing. Yeah. So she she comes off as very kind of boy crazy and sex crazy in this episode. Although, you know, in Brenda's defense, I mean, romance leads to sex. I don't think there, I don't think there's that much of a gap in between talking about romance and talking about sex. I suppose, I guess. So, <clears throat> they they're getting her all ready to go out on this date where she has decided she's going to sleep with him and this would be losing her virginity. As, yeah. as Brandon yeah. says to Dylan, <laughs> she's a virgin. Yeah. So, I don't know how Brandon knows that. Because they're, they're twins and they talk about stuff and they're close. So he would have felt it if she'd lost her <laughs> Ew! <laughs> That's terrible. Her hymen breaks and he spills, like, uh, strawberry jam on his face. What the hell? <laughs> what just happened? Oh, I know. What is wrong with you? Oh. <laughs> uh, not okay. Oh, man. But she goes to this film festival. Now, here's the thing. Why Why wasn't he picking her up? She doesn't drive. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and we don't even see how she gets there. So I want to know who dropped her off at Does the film festival. Does she still not have her license? She still doesn't have her license. I remember the episode where she went to, to try to get her license, but she still doesn't have it, huh? Well, I mean, I haven't seen her drive or no one's mentioned anything about her getting a license. That's true. Yeah, he should be picking her up. I agree. But she goes to meet him at the film festival, and he does not show. Mm-hmm. And she stands out there, it is so sad, for, like, the whole movie. Yeah. Probably hoping he'll just show up late. It was kind of dumb to wait the entire two-hour runtime of the film, but yeah. Right. So, um, she's super hurt and sad, and, like, like Brandon says to him later, um, she, she stays home from school on Monday. Like, she's just depressed all weekend. And um, apparently, you know, Dylan was dealing with some stuff with his dad, I guess. But, like, uh, pick up the phone and, and, and cancel your plans or at least drive over there and tell her so she's not waiting for two hours. What a jackass. Yeah, he should have called and left a message on her answering machine or something. Something, for sure. I mean, even if he called the house and tell Brandon or his parents so somebody goes and gets her. I mean, oh, but they weren't supposed to be together. So he can't leave a message on the answering machine. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's true. But as the episode goes on, um, he does, you know, try to, like, uh, make it up to her. He goes to the house to talk to her and explains, you know, that he was dealing with all this stuff and um, that he wasn't trying to hurt her. And then, of course, they end up making out again, like, serious making out. Her dad, his dad is getting indicted. Yeah. He reveals that his dad is getting indicted for an insider trading and he sold the place where they live. They had to move someplace else. And then his dad is skipping the country, leaving somewhere overseas. And he doesn't know exactly where, because if he did, then if they called him to testify, he would have to to tell him where his dad went to. But since he doesn't know, he can just, you know, he it's 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 what do they call it. It's not willful ignorance. It's 
a plausible deniability. Okay. He has plausible deniability because he doesn't know. He actually doesn't know. He just knows he skipped town, but he doesn't know where. So that's the situation with that. And and then she called him and left a message. And he said, oh, they never told me that you called. And she says, oh, now I feel bad. <laughs> it's like, why? Right. He could have done more to try to get a message to you that, you know, something was going on and he wouldn't be able to make it. Yeah, she said, this is weird, too. She said, some guy answered the phone and said that you were there, but that you wouldn't come to the phone. Mm -hmm. So, like, what guy? Do you think it was his dad? I mean, that seems weird. Or some underling. When they came in before, there was, like, five people in there talking to his dad. Somebody like that. Somebody shredding documents. (laughs) Who's just like, "Uh, fuck it, he won't come to the phone by. He probably thought uh, this is an FBI agent or or something. Right. So, um... They hear her dad coming in, and, like, they're racing for the door, and you can tell they've been making out. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. But in, in, in real life, you can always tell, too, because people's yeah. faces are red, and <laughs> their lips are all swollen. Right. So, um, but her dad and Dylan talk, and I think that her dad's going to be better about things now. Yeah, he's he seems to have cooled. Dylan says that he, he doesn't like what his dad does or anything mm-hmm. like that. And the dad seems to indicate that the real problem that he has is his daughter getting closer to losing her virginity. Right. Which, you know, who, what dad wants that? Yeah, but still, it's not something that I think that you can that you can forcibly stop. Right. I just don't think that's realistic. Especially at, you know, 16 years old. Right. So... That's pretty much how the episode ends. It looks like uh, Brenda and Dylan are going to be an item now. Yeah, well, that's that's part of... Uh, that's kind of how the episode ends, but something important happens in between Uh-oh, there. Uh-oh, what, what did I miss? So, Steve Sanders <laughs> negotiates with the teacher to go and pick up the oh, special yeah. guest this speaker from the airport. So, he picks her up. He takes her to the hotel room. She's supposed to be speaking the next day. And he starts to hit on her pretty hardcore, trying to get... And she he impersonates the teacher, pretends yeah. that he's he's the professor. And she says that, you know, she's tired, she's got... She's busy or something like that, and she can't go out tonight, but that she'll get his number or something like that. Yeah, she's trying to let him down gently. So the next day... They go into the the assembly where she's supposed to be speaking about sex education or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she starts giving her speech and she starts off by saying that she met a really attractive young man, blonde hair, blue eyes. <laughs> she's obviously talking about Steve. And she said that he asked her out, but it didn't work. The timing wasn't right. And she said what I didn't get a chance to tell him and what I'll have to tell Everybody that I go out with in the future is that I have AIDS. Right. <laughs> and Steve, they cut to Steve's face and his jaw just drops. <laughs> it's one of the, it's actually one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen in this show where though, like you could hear a pin drop, everything stops. And she kind of goes on and talks about uh, how she got AIDS when she lost her virginity. Yeah, it's so sad. And that's. You know, she tries to stay strong. The guy that that gave her AIDS died last year. And 
she goes through basically about being safe and, and, and how to, how to make sure that you're protected and all this stuff. And so it turns out to be a real kind of inspirational thing. Everyone thinks it's going to be this salacious thing. And it turns out to be a very serious conversation about AIDS. Well, of course it's a serious thing. I mean, why do kids always think health class is going to be what? It's going to be sexy. Right. It's I know. Not. I know. Especially with the teacher they have, that bearded <laughs> teacher. That's it's not like some supermodel is teaching sex ed to the guys. Right. Or some hunk for the girls, you know. So, yeah, it it's so dumb. I always think it's stupid when, when yeah. people think sex education is going to be anything other than sort of embarrassing. They're not giving you pro tips, guys. They're just going to teach you how it works and right. how to stay safe. Yeah, exactly. As we learned this past year. Yeah, so they, they, they use the banana and the condom, you know. Right. Anyway, so they that happens. And then, so Brenda and Dylan go out you know, talking and everything. I guess they're on a date. They're walking around some cliff somewhere looking out at the city. And she asks him if he's ever had sex without protection. And he oh, can, yeah. kind of avoids the question at first and says, not lately. <laughs> and the, she says, but ever, have you ever? And he said, yeah. And he basically says, do you want me to get a test? She's like, oh, you do that for me? It is kind of sweet and romantic that he's willing to do that for her, but then he says, no, it's for me. Well, he'd say, actually, I guess I'd be doing it for me. Right. Because, you know, he should probably want to know, too. Right. So, yeah, they they kind of, that's how they things end. They don't have sex yet, but once he gets tested and he's all clear. I'm sure they will, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, that's kind of how the episode ends. So, uh, what did you think of, of the episode in general? Um, I, I thought a good episode i think that you know there was some you know good points made about you know safety and aids and everything and um i don't know i thought it was interesting i i wanted to i i enjoyed getting to see how her and uh dylan started because you know where we left off in the season five that we're watching um it looked like they were kind of flirting and and you know there have been references to it but yeah. we haven't really seen it so yeah i agree so It'll be interesting to see where the relationship goes from here, I guess. I mean, we know it's not going to work out, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But, so, now, let's move on to the movie. Okay. We saw The Client, based on a book by John Grisham. And he did, he's written a few a few legal books. Yeah. That seem fairly interesting. I've read a couple of his books. I've read A Time to Kill and The Firm. But yeah, so a or uh, The Client, that's the uh, the one we're doing today. So it's a it's a really good movie, but it's really intense and serious and kind of a downer. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll I'll kind of let Carol go through most of this, I think, because I think you liked the movie more than I did. I thought it was fine. I had some problems with it, but I'll kind of let you do most of the the sort of the plot summary reading. But I'll I'll do the beginning. The beginning, I think it it, it starts fairly interestingly uh, with two boys, Mark and what's his brother's name? Oh my god, I don't remember. I can't think of what is Robbie or something like that. Who who knows uh, brother? Well, anyway, so Mark is the Mark Sway 
is the main character of this movie, basically. And it's his little brother. They're probably around like eight and 11 or something like that. Yeah. Maybe. I, I don't know. The brother could have been maybe even like six or seven. Yeah. But they're they're out smoking cigarettes in in the uh, the woods, the woods. Yeah. And this car pulls up and this guy gets out clearly drunk. He takes a garden hose and a, a handkerchief talking to himself like a maniac, too. Yeah. He puts one end of the garden hose in his tailpipe with this handkerchief and then to, you know, to block it from so that it'll all go into the hose. And then he gets into the car, kind of cracks the window open and puts the other end of the garden hose in the car. Obviously, he's going to kill himself. Mark recognizes that that's what he's going to do. Which is impressive from an 11-year-old boy. Yeah, he says he saw it on TV. A lot of the things that he knows, he says he sees on TV. Yeah. But anyway, so he he says to his brother that they can't... Just, and one of the things I like about the beginning of this movie is it's an exciting event... It's the instigating event for all the action that comes in the movie. And it also ends up giving us a, a window into the character of our main character. Right. To sort of the makeup of him. And he says that they can't just leave and let him kill himself because then that'll be on their conscience. Right. For the rest of their lives, he said that. So he crawls over there, pulls out the hose, and then crawls back. The guy figures it out and he, you know, comes back, puts it back in. Well, eventually, as he does that, he 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 looks in the mirror, sees Mark coming. So then he grabs him and puts him in the car, which I thought was how hor- horrific yeah. is that he he just figures instead of telling the kid, just get out of here. Right. And and forget about me and let me do this. He says, okay, well, you're going to die with me now. Which is, like, just what a scumbag. So he put, puts him in the car with him, and then there's this gun. He says to him, oh, you know, I'll give you a choice. He picks up the gun. He says, I'll give you a choice. You know, I can shoot you right now, and it'll all be over with, or we can let the gas do its thing and just wait here and talk. So then they talk, and he says that he's a lawyer for some mob people, He's killing himself because he knows too much. He knows where the bodies are buried, all this stuff. And he mentions a particular body. And that kind of cuts to the outside because, you know, we're not supposed to know this information yet, basically. Mark's supposed to know it, but we're not supposed to know it. We cut to the outside from his little brother's point of view. And his little brother was just sitting there crying. I know that poor kid. I just my heart was breaking. And then he finally crawls over to pull the thing out so to so that his little brother or so his big brother doesn't die. And that's when Mark gets a hold of the gun and the guy's like, Yeah, go ahead, shoot me, kill me, all this stuff. Yeah. And he ends up getting he ends up Mark ends up getting out of the car, being able to get out of the car. And the guy goes looking for him. He's like, Oh, you better just let die with me because he's going to find out that I told you the things I shouldn't told you and then they're going to kill you and all this stuff. It's like, it's so weird. Just kill yourself. Right. If you're going to kill yourself, just do it. Why Leave are you the little boy alone? Exactly. So he ends up shooting himself in the head. The, the little, his little brother ends up going to his house, sucking on his thumb in his bed, totally, you know, post-traumatic stress, 
as they say, as the doctor says later, just completely shut down from what yeah. he saw. He's in shock. And Mark, basically, the cops, he calls the cops because the guy killed himself. And he gets found by the cops in the woods. And then he basically says to them, well, we saw, we came across his body. And that's it. Right. And then they they figure out that that's not true. He's he's driving in there and he said the driving him to the hospital or whatever and he says something about he says something about what's his like he, he gives the guy's name. Romy. Romy. Because the guy's name's Jerome Clifford. Yeah. And he asked Mark to call him Romy since they're such good friends now. Right. So he says, I, you know, I never even talked to Romy. Mm-hmm. And the cop goes, who said anything about Romy? The guy's name's Jerome, whatever. So, like, he knows right away that, that you know, he's lying. Yeah. That he actually did talk to him. So then, because the brother's all comatose and everything, he's got to come clean and say that they saw him kill himself. Right. But I didn't have any conversation with him. That's when Tommy Lee Jones enters the picture. And then we they they do exposition through the the TV, mm-hmm. which is I mean, this is a it's a good movie, but it's sort of a lazy way to do exposition. I guess. But anyway, so they say that the a, a Louisiana senator is missing, presumed dead, killed by the mafia, I guess. And the U.S. District Attorney for the Southern District in Louisiana there, which is played by Tommy Lee Jones, Reverend, what do they call it? Reverend Ray, right? Yeah. Reverend Roy. Roy, yes. Reverend yeah. Roy. He he quotes scripture all the time in in church, and he's a, he's a very good, most U.S. District Attorneys are really good lawyers. Right. So he's he's trying to find out what happened? He wants to get a conviction on these people for the murder, but they, he, they, he needs the body in order to be able to do that. They never say exactly why they need the body. Well, yeah, I mean, like, we don't, I mean, that sounds like a whole other movie to figure out everything that's going on with that case. Right. But anyway, so he gets wind that Mark may have information because all of his fingerprints are found inside the car. Mm-hmm. So they know he was in there with him. Yeah, because this dick cop steals his soda can from the trash. Yeah. And does fingerprint sweep. Mm-hmm. That just seems like... I mean, this it's a child. They, they Throughout this whole movie, they do not treat him like a child. And then there's the thing. is That's one of the problems I have with the structure of this movie. Obviously, we're rooting for Mark... And we're rooting for his family and his lawyer, which we'll get to in a minute. But there are two main groups of bad guys, so to speak, in this movie. Mm -hmm. The mobsters who murdered a U.S. senator for some reason and who obviously commit murders and deal in drugs or whatever they do. So they're a clear villain. And then... The people trying to bring those people to justice are also the villains. Right. It muddles things too much. They they go over the top with it. If if the main and and I guess Tommy Lee Jones' character doesn't get pulled into this quite as much. Although they go to interview Mark and Mark says, "Shouldn't I have a lawyer present?" And they say, "Oh no, lawyers just mess things up." They they really. 
they they could be disbarred oh, for, yeah. for what they what they're doing. Questioning him without his mother present, without a lawyer present, advising him that he doesn't need a lawyer. Yeah, I mean that was just over the top. As soon as he asked, they should have backed off. Absol- obviously, he knew what he was doing. And that's the thing; they should have they they make them go over the top. The cop goes over the top with what he's trying to do. The cop could be more friendly about it, but still sort of insistent. Where he's like, look, you slipped up, you called him Romy, I know you had a conversation with him, and he said that. These guys did some bad things, we want to bring them to justice, you need to help us out. Same thing with the lawyers, instead of being as scummy as they are, yeah, they, I, maybe they're trying to get them to ride the line, but they're too much on the bad side of the line. In my opinion. Agreed. The the central fight between the two of them should be their insistence that these people need to be brought to justice because of the horrific things they've done. And Mark not wanting him and his family to be in danger. And then the danger being the the mobsters, you know, having sort of a periphery presence in the movie. Right. I think that structure of things would have made things better they move the lawyers over to too much of the bad guys where you can't you can't fully empathize with what they're trying to do. Yeah, just like you said just cuz they're going about it such a terrible way. Right. So I think that that's one thing that I would fix that I would change about the movie. Another thing that I would change about the movie is the casting of the the main villain I guess, the main mobster. What what do they call him? The the blade or something like yeah, that? The knife? Mel, Mel, Melfano? Something like that? Yeah. He's... I can't remember that guy's name. He's a decent actor. He usually plays New York cops or something like that in movies that he's in, which he's much more suited to. Him trying to do a southern accent is laughable. <laughs> and he just doesn't look or act like a... A hitman for the mafia. Right. It's just, it's not, it doesn't work. Everyone else is really good in this movie. Susan Sarandon's really good in this movie. What's that guy, Brad, Brad Renfro? Yeah. This is his first movie. He's incredibly good in Very this movie. Talented. Very talented actor. Tommy Lee Jones is really good in this movie. Tommy Lee Jones is always good. The the woman that plays his mother, and I she's been in lots of other movies, but I cannot think of her name. She's very good in this mm-hmm. movie as well, and she's usually very solid. Everyone's really good in this movie, except that guy. That guy s- s- sticks out, and it's not that he's a bad actor; it's just miscasting. Yeah, he just he wouldn't he would have been better as the cop, he and he could or... have been played. He could could have played the cop in a much more friendly way while still trying to be insistent, we've got to bring these people to justice, and you're kind of standing in our way because you have the information we need. Or he also, I think he could be a good lawyer character, too. I can picture yeah. him in a suit and putting on the charm. Yeah, yeah, he could, he could have done that as well. But either way, he was miscast in this movie. That's, that's the other thing that I would change. So, you know, after they get to the hospital, I guess I'll, I'll let you take it from there, What the kind of the major plot points from there. Okay, after they get to the hospital? Yeah, well, they, they bring the brother to the hospital. They take the, the well, I guess we got to where they're questioning him. Yeah, well, that's I, the I thing. I mean, we've, we've skipped all around, so it's kind of, yeah. I can't really lay it out like that now. Um, but basically, they're in a hospital that takes indigent cases. The right. 
that comes up in the beginning. The, the family lives in a trailer, mm-hmm. and the mom works at, she says at some point that it's a sweatshop making $5 an hour. Yeah, terrible. Yeah. So mom smokes. That's where they get the cigarettes from. Dad was an abusive asshole that Mark brings up uh, having to hit him in the face with a frying pan. Or no, a bat. That was it, a bat. Yeah. Um, to get him to go away. Because somebody suggested mom wants to leave. Her son is in a freaking coma from, you know, trauma. Yeah. And she has to go to work. Yeah, she doesn't really want to leave, but she needs to go to work. Right. Because she wants to keep her job. And the, the doctor says... Well, just call, you know, I'll call your boss and he'll understand. And she said, he doesn't care. You know, and that's when she says it's a sweatshop. She says, she's not, he's not going to care at all. And uh, she's like, well, there goes another job. And she does get fired after yeah. one day of not showing up. But, um, you know, the doctor had suggested that she take shifts with the dad. And mm-hmm. Mark walks in and he's like, ex dad, and don't you bring him here. And he, I mean, he just flows off the handle. But it's, you know, we find out later that's why this mm-hmm. guy was terrible. And and basically, I mean, this poor kid feels like he has to take care of his mom and his little brother because he drove dad out of the house also to take care of them. Yeah. And his mom is only 27. Yeah. She had him when she was a teenager. She was she's six. She was 16 when, when he was born. And then, you know, like two years later or whatever, his brother was born. Yeah. So, yeah, she's still a, a kid basically herself. Yeah. I mean, she she never like had a childhood. She never had a chance to go to to college or anything like that because she was raising children with an abusive guy. It's it's a whole shit show. Yeah, I mean, they they really have a have a sad sad setup. And um, when he realizes that he needs a lawyer, mm-hmm. he goes looking for one in this building, this office building, just full of lawyers. Yeah. And it's this is kind of comical. He's opening doors and, you know, one's like super busy and, and they're like, you know, are you injured? We only deal with injuries in here. Right. And um, then, you know, another one, the guy just looks at him. He's like, yes. And he's like, hell no. And shuts the door. Yeah. He finds the building because there's this lawyer in the hospital. Yeah. With this guy that got injured. The guy played by Matt Frewer, who was Max Headroom back in the 80s. But in a very, very small role, but Max Furr has been in a ton of stuff. And Matt Furr. And he's like, he, he basically wheels away and says, God, there's more lawyers in this place than there are doctors. <laughs> but the lawyer was trying to get his case, and basically, and, and see if they could get some money. So he drops his flyer, and Mark picks it up, and I guess the address is on there, so he right. goes... He goes there and looks for a bunch of different lawyers, and that's when he comes across... Reggie Love. Yeah. And Reggie Love is played by Susan Sarandon. Yeah, Reggie Love, who... He goes in and sees Susan Sarandon by her window. I thought she was going to jump out for a second. <laughs> she was just trying to get it open. Yeah. Um, And he, he asks when her boss will be back. Mm-hmm. The whole, you know, this whole movie has a lot of uh, chauvinism and just, you know, masochistic, uh, not masochists. What is it called? (laughs) Machismo? I don't know. Chauvinism and... Misogyny. Misogyny, yeah. Yeah. Um, So, but yeah, I think... Oh, sorry. I guess I'm being uh, misogynistic. No, no. Go go ahead. 
No, I just, um, so he walks in asking about her boss, you know, when her boss is going to be back throughout the whole movie, you know, there's a lot of, uh, the B word being dropped by people and, um, everybody talks down to her throughout the movie. It's just annoying. I was going to point out that I didn't know if that was John Grisham's commentary on how things are like in the South, perhaps. How things are like. Yeah. What things are like in the (laughs) South. Yeah, probably. John Grisham's from the South. He's from Mississippi. I don't believe he has that attitude towards women. No, I, I wasn't thinking. I wasn't thinking that that was the intention behind it. That you know, to promote the misogyny. I felt more no. like it was shining a light on it. Yeah, and that's that's what I'm like. I, I don't know that. I guess, but based on interviews I've seen with him, he he seems like a not racist person. He seems like a not prejudiced person towards women or, or anything else he seems pretty kind of open-minded of everybody but i think so i'm not accusing him of that but i'm thinking that that maybe he sees a lot of that or saw a lot of that when he was growing up yeah and he kind of is trying to like you said shine a light on that that's my guess as to what this is because that's our because this is our hero character yep and the first thing he does when he he sees the other main character in the movie is insult her based on her sex. Right. Um, he hires her with a dollar. Yeah, for a dollar. Because she is an amazing person. And, you know, I mean, he, he she asks why he thinks he needs a lawyer. And he's like, I'm that kid from TV, don't you know? And blah, blah, blah. And, like, as he's explaining more to her what's going on, she's like, well, you do need a lawyer. And it was just so, so sweet when uh, he's like, how much do you cost? And she's like, how much you got? Yeah. And he dropped a dollar on the table and, and she took his case. So good for her. Um, she's kind of, she kind of fills the mother role throughout because his mom is, you know, way too busy and stressed out and on um, Valium. Valium. Yeah. <laughs> the doctor, the doctor, her son's doctor prescribed her Valium. <laughs> Mary Louise Parker, that's the actress's name. She's yeah. very good. Um, so then she, um, she had actually wired him. When he went to go meet with the lawyers with Tommy Lee Jones's character, and uh, you know, got it on tape when they were telling him he didn't need a lawyer and all of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, she tells them if they if they lie again, that she'll use the tape. Yeah, and you know, it comes in handy, uh, I think, throughout the movie to kind of, uh, you know, get get them to work with her. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I'm kind of losing where I'm at in this movie right now. Um, okay. Well, so, <laughs> so I guess then we, we kind of switch to the mob character for, for a minute. And then we get sort of, a uh, an idea of what's going on there. He goes to his boss, who's his uncle and basically says, I can't move the body. The uncle says that he, the uncle says that he said something, or, or maybe it was the, the, hitman character i don't remember but they say they said something to the lawyer and he was like i was just trying to put a fright in him not get him to blow his head off or whatever and they kind of because this the the media is sort of playing up the story they come mark comes to their attention and they're like well he might know something and we can't let them find the body and i can't move the body yet because cops are crawling all over the place right now so they go to see if they, you know, need to kill him 
basically kill this kid. And from there, Tommy Lee Jones comes in and it, like, I, I don't remember exactly what yeah, happens. Yeah, it's kind like, of, a, a, it's just, it's a lot through the whole movie. It's going back and forth between the lawyers and the mob. But no matter which way that Mark is turning, somebody's coming after him mm-hmm. and wanting to know, what do you know? What do you know? What do you know? Mm-hmm. It's amazing that he's not in a freaking, you know, stress coma and on Valium and shit. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> And, um, like at one point he hears, um, oh, he hears when Reggie is talking to the other lawyers, something about, does his mom know that, you know, you have a history of being institutionalized for drugs and alcohol. Right. So he wants to fire her. (laughs) He gets, he gets pissed and, and, and just takes off. She doesn't even know what's wrong. She's chasing him down the street. And then there's this media mob outside the hospital that all come running at him. So he hops in her car. And it's basically like, it really is like kidnapping. She takes him to her house. He doesn't want to come in. He doesn't even want to work with her anymore. And and he's just like, I'm just going to stand out here and hitchhike back and blah, blah, blah. And eventually somebody, one of the mob guys comes and tries to get him to get in their car. They burn the trailer down too. Yeah. They burn the trailer down so that there's nothing. They've destroyed everything that they own. Yeah, they have not. I mean, they have literally nothing now. And what's his name from Revenge of the Nerds is is that's her her brother, right? But also her assistant, Susan Sarandon. Oh yeah. I can't think of what his name is. Anthony Anthony Edwards? Is that I his name? I, I, I didn't know it was her brother though, but maybe it's just her assistant. I don't know. But yeah, I mean he he's there at the house with them and But yeah, I just remember him from Revenge of the Nerds when he had hair. So we get a little bit of insight into her character at that time, and she kind of, you know, explains to Mark what what happened with her. Like she went through a divorce, and she put her husband through medical school. Yeah. And as soon as he, you know, was done and and successful, he traded her in for a younger model. Yep. And then she started taking it sounded like pills. Yep. And then she lost her children. They said she was unfit, and so she started drinking. And then when she got herself clean and sober, she went to law school and became a lawyer. And, and she actually specializes in divorce and custody. Yeah. So, you know, she's trying to, like, fix the mistakes in her own life. Yeah, it's very, it's very, her backstory is very interesting. Yeah. They they spend a lot of time on characterization for the characters, which is nice. Yeah, which is why I think we can speak so much more about character than actual plot. Because the plot's just... A the, jumble. Yeah, the b- plot kind of meanders for a little while in the middle of the movie. And then we get to sort of the head of the matter where Tommy Lee Jones it says, this dude needs to testify. And, yeah. and if he's not going to testify, then we're going to put pressure on him to testify. Because Tommy Lee Jones, above everything else, wants to find this body and get these mobsters. And basically... He'll do whatever he has to do to get it done. Right. So he he uh, puts Mark in jail. Yeah, yeah. He gets the judge to sign a custody order. And I, I mean, this seems so wrong. Like, I realize if a judge signs it, it's legal, but it does not seem like it should be. Mm-hmm. They, they take him to a women's prison mm-hmm. and put him in his own section of the prison. Um, and when they came to take him, his poor frickin' mother, she has one son laying there in a frickin' coma. Yeah. And they're trying to take her other kid, and she fights those cops like a feral cat. <laughs> Good for her. I probably would do the same thing if I were her. Yeah, absolutely. 
She's like, you can't take my boy, but they do. Yeah, so they take him to jail, and then the next day they they go to court. And Reggie kind of talks to the judge before beforehand and says, you know, she wants protective custody for the child. And he said, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know, you know what's going to happen with that and everything. She should be talking to Tommy Lee Jones. Right. I don't understand why they can't just get protective custody for him right away. But anyway, he, they, he goes into court and they, you know, they argue back and forth. It's a lot of legalese. Uh, I, written, I'm assuming accurately, John Grisham was a lawyer. John Grisham understands the law. And so it's like I said, it's a lot of legalese, but basically they're arguing back and forth whether or not this child should be compelled to testify. They think their big argument is that to clear his name, he should testify. That's so ridiculous. And she, you know, rightly indignantly says, are they alleging that Mark murdered (laughs) Jerome, whatever his name is, the, the lawyer, the mob lawyer? And they said, no, you know, he's not being accused of, of any of that right now. But just, you know, his his fingerprints are all over the place. And right now we're only considering obju- obstruction of justice. But he, you know, he should testify just to clear his name. I, obviously, what they want is they want to know where that body is. Right. I don't know why they can't just say this ha- child has material evidence to a capital murder case. He must be compelled to give us that evidence. Right. You know, or, or justice can't be served. That That's that's a straightforward argument that they could make. Because it is obstruction of justice if he's not going to, to give the evidence. So he takes a stand and she tries to get it. She tries to get a stay. She tries to get it, the venue moved. <laughs> she tries anything that she can to prevent him from having to testify right now because he doesn't want to say what he saw. But she tells him you can't lie, which is true. And that's what a lawyer should be advising their client. You can't commit perjury. Yeah. She said if he does get you up on the stand, you have to tell the truth. Yeah. And so he gets on the stand and they start questioning him. He, he you know, he, he answers honestly for the first couple of questions. Then as they get to the heart of the matter, they, they he says, is taking the fifth lying? <laughs> and the judge says, no. It's not lying. It's not applicable in this case, but it's not lying. And then Reggie says, given the fact that they seem so cavalier about accusing my clients. Right. I would have to advise him to take the the, the fifth. So he (laughs) pleads the fifth, which is not it's not applicable in this case. It really isn't. I I see that. I think the judge allows it because the judge wants to give as much leeway to Mark as possible. His his mom's not there. He says that he'll be watching out for the welfare of the boy. The, you know, the, he, him as quote unquote the court right. will be will be doing that, which is certainly his job in lieu of parents. Um, and so I think he allows it because he's giving as much leeway as he can. But in strict legal terms, the Fifth Amendment, the, your Fifth Amendment protection is only if you would if you were to give testimony that could directly implicate you in a crime right and his not giving the testimony is the only thing that could be considered a crime it could be considered obstruction of justice his testifying 
wouldn't be considered a crime. The only thing that he would be testifying to that might be considered a crime is if he did, if he did actually kill this guy, which we know he didn't. <laughs> and he wouldn't be saying that. So, you know, it's only direct testimony that could implicate you in a crime. You're not, you know, you're not, you're, you're not compelled to do that. So it, it's a very, it's a very broad definition of the Fifth Amendment that they're using. And the thing is, I mean, he he wants so badly not to testify that he knows he's going back to jail. They're not yeah. letting him out of no. the court. They're, they're taking him back into custody. Yeah, and Tom, and when that happens, the judge says, you know, I, as much as I don't want to, I have no, I have no other choice but to remand you into the the jail, custody, custody in jail, until we can figure all this out. And so that's what they do. And Tommy Lee Jones kind of scolds uh, Susan Sarandon, basically saying, y- "You want I don't you want to ruin this boy's life or just flat out get him killed?" Right. You, you know, by by advising him to take the Fifth Amendment, he's obviously angry. And this is the one area. This is where I think why Tommy Lee Jones' character comes across better than than any of the rest of them because he plays it with a little more nuance, a little more humanity. I think basically what he's saying there is. Let him testify. Once he tells us the information, then there there are two reasons why the mobsters might want to kill him. To silence him or for revenge right. for what he knows. If he testifies, you take one of those away. Right. He can no longer be silenced because we now have the information that we need. And we don't need to call him up to the stand to testify to anything else that he's heard. All we need to know is the location of the body, which he knows. And he's the only person that knows it. So the only reason they'd want to kill him after that is revenge. And, you know, that I think Tommy Lee Jones's point of view is it would be stupid to try to kill him for, for revenge. Because if something happens to him, then we've got them on another murder. Yeah. You know, we know, like, they'll have eyes on him, whatever, you know, and stuff. So once he testifies, he shouldn't be in danger anymore. I think that's Tommy Lee Jones's point of view. Which, I mean, may or may not be true. They are the mob. They might kill him in cold blood just because. Yeah. I mean, that that's totally true. To send a message. But, I mean, that's the thing, too. I could understand if this was another mobster mm-hmm. and they wanted to send a message to all other mobsters. Hey, you rats. And we'll get you. Or even some other adult. But are they sending a message to all 11-year-old boys out there? You, <laughs> right? you know what I mean? It doesn't It doesn't make a lot of sense that way. I think Tommy Lee Jones has a point in the fact that if he just testifies, he's probably not going to be in danger anymore. But then um, Mark finds a way to break out of jail. Yeah. <laughs> he fakes being sick. He fakes being sick like his brother is. Yeah. And I still don't know how he did it, though, because he got his heart rate up. He was all sweaty and stuff. Like, what did he do? I, I don't, don't know. know. I don't remember exactly what he did, but. But yeah, so he gets taken back to the hospital and escapes. Yeah. And then the mob is at the hospital. There are police guarding his brother, mm-hmm. but the mob is at the hospital. And now the mob is after him again. And he and Reggie go on the run in her car. And basically, he says that, you know, he's willing to testify now, but he wants protective custody. But if he tells them where the body is and it's not there, will he get protective custody? And she says, no. And he says, well, what are our options? And she says, basically, we just have to kind of roll the dice and hope that your information is accurate, that the lawyer was right, 
They haven't moved the body yet because Mark's worried about them having moved the body. Right. Valid concern. And so he's like, no, screw that. He goes, we need to go to Louisiana. We need to go to Louisiana and make sure that the body is there where he said it was so that, you know, we we can get protective custody. How how far is it between Memphis and New Orleans? I mean, it seems like it would be further than they act, they act like this is a, a short jaunt. Uh, Memphis, so Memphis, Tennessee to New Orleans, Louisiana. It's, it's probably maybe five hours or something like that. I don't think it's super far. Okay. It's, you know, Tennessee, so it's under Kentucky. It's, I think, the only state, I think you drive through Arkansas, and that's, I think that's it. You drive, you drive kind of an I diagonal through basically the entire state of Arkansas into Louisiana, but I don't think it's super long. Okay. So like five, maybe six hours, something like that. I don't think it's a real long drive, but they, you could do it in a day easily. So they um, they do go. They go to New Orleans, and it turns out where the body is buried is in the boathouse mm-hmm. of Jerome Clifford. Yeah, underneath one of the boats. He said that he wanted it, he wanted Jerome to always remember how close to death he was, or something like that. Isn't that just disgusting? It's the weirdest thing for your for to. I can understand you not wanting your lawyer to turn on you because the, the lawyer has all the information basically right. by design. But I don't know. It's so it's so dumb. Yeah. So obviously they were the cops were all over that after his death because they were investigating. You know, I'm sure they were at his house too. They were you know any place that he was looking for evidence and everything. So you know they get there and the mob is there to move the body to move the body because now people cops have finally gone and everything. And so Mark is caught on top of the boat. And Susan Sarandon, Reggie Love is is outside, and she basically she grabs him. She goes climbs up this window and grabs him by his sneaker <laughs> and pulls him out. They hear him and then they start chasing him. Mark, uh, there's a, a, a struggle. The guy's got a gun. It gets knocked out of his hand. You know, uh, he pulls out his knife and he's about to cut Reggie. And Mark picks up the gun and basically says, "I'm you know I'm going to kill you. Let her go. Drop the knife." He drops the knife. And he 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 implies that because Reggie's like, don't kill him. Don't shoot him. You'll be just like them. Don't sink down to their level. Give me the gun. She finally gets the gun away from him. And then the mob guy's like, you should have let him shoot me because you don't have the balls to do it. He basically indicates that he thinks that Mark would have killed him. Yeah. But she wouldn't because she doesn't have well, the Well, she was talking Mark down. Yeah. So that makes sense. Um, but, but I think it's weird to, to, to I mean, and I know it's sort of a cliche in movies where it's like, oh, I can look in your eyes and see if you're a killer or not. So basically he's saying he thinks Mark's willing to kill, but she's not. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me. I guess. It's just weird because he's only 11. Um, but so she, she manages, though, to set off an alarm. She shoots. By shooting yeah. the, uh, the neighbor's house. Like they have some kind of alarm out there. There's like a box. That I think is is part of their alarm system. Yeah. It's part of the electrical wiring of their alarm system or something. But she shoots it. So she's obviously a very good shot. Right. Because she shoots it and it goes off. This guy comes out with a shotgun. It's like, what are you doing? And starts shooting. But it was really smart because they have to take off now because the police are coming. Mm-hmm. And um, that buys them just enough time. Yeah, the police are all over that boathouse now again. Right. 
And um, they're able to make a deal. Yeah, Tommy Lee Jones comes down with his crew of FBI agents and, and other people from his law office. And, um, you know, she remembers back to a conversation she had with Mark's mom about how she had always wanted a house with a white house with a walk-in closet. Mm -hmm. So she even negotiates in this deal with him that when they put them in witness protection, that she will get a white house with a walk-in closet, which I just thought was so freaking sweet. Yeah. And um, so they're going to get her his brother moved to a better hospital, and they get to start over. Yep. So they, yeah, I mean, that, and that's basically how the movie ends, is that they go into witness protection. Tommy Lee Jones makes the deal with them to find out where the body is. Uh, he says to Susan Sarandon, because he says, oh, you should have negotiated immunity for yourself <laughs> in, in all this. And then she kind of pulls out the tape and uh, says, yeah, you know, eye for an eye or whatever. And... So he says, "Hey, if I ever become governor, do you want uh, you want a job?" <laughs> <laughs> so that that's kind of how the movie ends. Uh, you know, Mark says, oh, "I'll never be able to see you again," and all this stuff. And then he's like, "I'll, I'll call you." Yeah, <laughs> which I'm sure he will. But yeah, they get to start. They get some startup money. She gets. She's going to get set up with a good job. And you know, they kind of. It's implied that the brother is going to come out of everything. Well, I mean, I guess that's implied. I mean, I don't know how anybody would know, though. I mean, we just got to wait and see what happens when they get to the hospital, but we don't get to know. Yeah, he seems like he's coming out of it kind of on the plane. They really focus in on him, and it seems like he's, he like kind of looks up towards his brother and has a little like spark of recognition and, and everything. It seems like he's starting to come out. We just get the barest hint. Maybe. I, I didn't really see that, but I, I, I'll take your word for that. But yeah, that's basically how the movie ends. Uh, Carol, so what did you think overall? I mean, I kind of, I gave some of my my reservations about the film. What did you think overall? Well, I, I agree with the points that you made. I still really enjoy the movie. Um, I think that it's so well acted. The characters are just so well defined. And, you know, it's it, it, it gets you emotionally invested. So, you know, I, it's a good film. I enjoy it. Joel Schumacher, who directed this movie, uh, I think has shown that he's good at working with actors and he's good at character stuff. He's he's maybe not so good at the broad strokes of plot and and, and even like pacing mm-hmm. and things like that. His movies have a tendency to meander a little bit, but I, I think he's really good with characters and he's really good with actors. And that's easily the strength of this movie is the characters and, and the acting of the film. There are some, there are some plot stuff that I think, like I said, it it meanders a little bit. I think it's a little, a little slow in certain areas, but for the most part, you know, I think it's, it's pretty, it's pretty satisfying. Probably the other movie that I know you like, that Schumacher directed is the Lost Boys. Oh yeah, that's a great one. So that's and he he also did Saint Elmo's Fire for you know for people that are a little older than us. Probably he also directed Flatliners. So <gasps> I love Flatliners. That's one of my favorite movies ever. <laughs> we should do that one of our night days or whatever when we go to the video store. He directed another movie that I like a lot that came out last year called Falling Down with Michael Douglas. I don't think I've seen that one. It's it's an interesting movie. And he also directed Dying Young. 
I don't know if you remember that one with Julia Roberts and Campbell Scott. Oh, yeah. I didn't love that movie. But yeah, so he's but I think you can kind of see from that filmography that it's very sort of, you know, like I said, it's it's very character heavy. It's and, and he does well with actors. I think that's. You know, that's clearly the strength of this movie, but the plot sort of kind of it's kind of a jumble, like you said. But, you know, so I would fix I would fix some things about the film. But for the most part, I think it was it was pretty good. I I mean, I would give it if we were we don't we don't do rating systems here. But if we were giving it like out of five stars, say, I'd probably give it like three and Three and three quarters, okay. clo- close to four. Maybe I would give not it four. Maybe not quite four. I think it totally deserves four. I mean, I guess if you consider four eighty percent, so that's like a B minus. Then yes, I'd give it four. That's the the hard part about the the five star system is it's a little restrictive. I guess if you went to ten stars, then I'd I'd probably give it like between seven and eight, seven and a half maybe. Okay. Out of ten, seven and a half, maybe eight. But yeah, it's. I mean, it, it's hard because if, I can't equate that to the rate to the grading system. You know what I mean? It just mm-hmm. doesn't work for me. Yeah, I'd probably go about seven, seven and a half. Okay. Out of ten stars, it's it's a decent movie, but it's not great. Not not my favorite movie of the year. Well, that is our episode for the week. We will end this episode as we end every episode. With our blockbuster pick of the week, Carol, this week we are picking... Uh, The Chase. Well, that's one of them, yeah, for sure. (laughs) I have two on my list. Okay. But, yeah, The Chase, we talked about The Chase. Obviously, if you want to, you can go back to that tape, find that someplace in your shoebox full of tapes. But... It came came to video quick. It did come to video pretty quick. I wonder if O.J. Simpson has anything to do with it. (laughs) I, I think we mentioned... That the chase that happens in the movie The Chase is a lot like the chase that happened in real life with the white Ford Bronco. Yeah. It's so weird how how life has imitated movies with this O.J. Simpson thing. Right. Like just different movies that came out around like right around before that happened uh, have like Serial Mom as well. It's so weird. But. You know, so that might be part of the reason why I came to to video so fast. The other one is My Girl 2, which we didn't see in the theaters, but uh, or we didn't we didn't talk about seeing in the theaters anyway. Right. But in this movie, it's like, uh, you know, obviously it's an expansion on the movie where the guy died from all the bee stings. My Girl is an amazing, amazing movie. I don't know about My Girl 2. It's pretty good. But this is it, it. My girl, I guess, is early sixties, mm-hmm. so it's a lot about early sixties kind of stuff. This is later sixties, so I think it's more hippies, psychedelic, right? Kind of not not that it's about drugs or anything like that, but it's about growing up in that time and and how how culture is a lot different in the late sixties than it was in the earlier part of the sixties. So I think it's a lot less sweet, maybe, and more sort of teenage adventure <laughs> Maybe we should uh, rent it and uh, see. But that is, I will, I'll, I'll, I'll tell people to check it out. It's a decent one, I think. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen it, so I'm. I know you should haven't rent seen it. it. Anyway, so that is our show for the week. 
Join us next week for more Massive Late Fee. And as always, tell a friend, send these tapes to some people, uh, continue to spread the word. Five stars on Carol's Locker. If you want to, uh, you know, get all these these tapes early or the exclusive tapes, you can uh, give some money to Carol. You know, donate some money there. And if you want to contact us, you can uh, put some some stuff in my locker. <laughs> all right, everybody, have a great week. Bye. Bye.